All right, friends, Greg Kokel here on Stand to Reason, and uh, we're going to do something a little different this show. Actually, <clears throat> excuse me, for the next two shows. Every once in a while, I get interviewed. Um, well, let me back up. <laughs> I get interviewed a lot by different people, but every once in a while, I think that the interview is especially um, helpful to the listeners, partly because of the content material, uh, partly because of the excellence of the host, and sometimes because of the excellence of the guest, I guess, would be me. In other words, I feel like I've uh, done a, an adequate job of addressing an issue. Very um, infrequently, though, do I get a long interview on one topic. Generally, my the interviews that I participate in are, well, 45 minutes to an hour, maybe an hour and 15, maybe an hour and a half on the outside if we're going well and things are moving along and uh, there's a lot to say. Okay, the interview I want to share with you is actually two hours long. And I want uh, on this series of shows to share both of those interviews with you, uh, in part because of the the topic matter. The um, the topic in this particular case um, is the issue of morality. Now, I I'm very interested in this topic, not just morality in itself and how it plays out, moral issues play out in culture, um, but. Uh, I'm also interested because of the, the, the broader ramifications that objective morality has for the existence of God. And I, I do get asked the question um, on occasion, what is my favorite argument for God? And I think the cosmological arguments, including the Kalam, a Big Bang, needs a Big Banger, are great arguments. They're intuitive. They're straightforward. They're not hard to understand. Um, I think the design argument, also known as the teleological argument, is a great argument. And even atheist Richard Dawkins admits that the biological realm, at least, looks designed. Um, but he doesn't think it is. He thinks it's uh, faux design by the blind watchmaker of natural selection and mutation, okay? But um, as powerful and effective and as straightforward as I think those arguments are, I, I actually prefer a different argument. And uh, that argument is the moral argument for the existence of God. Now, the moral argument trades on a particular notion, uh, at least the way I play it out. The, the argument uh, put simply is simply, if there is no objective morality, there is no God. But there is uh, objective morality, therefore there is a God. Did I say that right? No, let me back up and put it. That's the fallacious way of putting it. <laughs> if there is no God, there is no objective morality. But there is objective morality, therefore there is a God. If there is no God, there is no objective morality. No lawmaker, no law. But there is law, objective morality, therefore there is the lawmaker God. Okay, that's the argument, uh, and that's a sound—I should say it's a valid form, which is modus tollens, and, and it's, uh, it, it depends on the truthfulness of its premises, like all deductive arguments do. What's interesting about this argument, though, is the claim that there's objective morality is the, is the controversial claim. 
But here's the deal. There's something everybody knows, no matter where they live or when they lived, and what they know is that something's wrong with the world. That's the problem of evil. But as I discuss in the interview, there cannot be a problem of evil if morality is not objective. If it's just a matter of personal opinion, then there's no evil out there in the world. That's pretty much how this works. Now, since the awareness of evil in the world is so pervasive, this is a knockdown, drag out, I think, uh, evidence, proof, if you will, that morality is not relative, but objective. That is, we all know that it's not relative, it's objective, okay? And uh, this is why we all raise, one way or another, the problem of evil in our hearts or minds if we're raising objections to Christianity. And, um, and so this is the, in the, I think, what gives the moral argument its force. It seems pretty straightforward that if there is no moral lawmaker, there's not going to be any moral law. If there's no one to whom we are beholden, then there are no laws that make us beholden to someone. And then, therefore, their relativism would be true. But we know that there is moral law, because the moral law is broken, which is the problem of evil, and therefore there must be a lawmaker, there must be God. Now, there's some pushbacks on this, and the standard pushback is Darwinian evolution, and uh, of course we deal with that in the second series, uh, the second uh, hour, uh, the maybe moral Platonism, we talk about that. So this podcast is Reasoned Hope, and the host is Parks Edwards, and in this podcast I explain why we should think objective morality exists, and I've already hinted at that, and why God is the best explanation for its existence, okay? And not only that, and that's what I'll spend the first hour focusing in on, the second hour we're going to talk about pushbacks, and I've already hinted at some of those as well. And uh, some of the pushbacks are the problem with what's called Euthyphro's Dilemma, that goes all, all the way back to the 4th century BC. We'll talk about the resolution for that. We'll talk about what's called moral Platonism. We'll talk about uh, cultural relativism and the notion of moral progress. Uh, we'll talk about the evolutionary explanation for morality, which is the standard pushback on why you don't need God. You can go to evolution, and that's going to do the job. It's not going to do the job, and I go into detail with that. So, anyway, I think you're going to enjoy these shows, both of them, uh, the shows once again, hosted by Parks Edwards, and the title is Reasoned Hope. Here you go. Greg, thank you so much for being with me today. Well, Parks, I am really looking forward to our conversation because I love this topic that you have scheduled for us. Oh, I I do too. It's uh, I think it's a very important uh, topic and uh, a very important argument amongst the uh, the classical arguments for the existence of God. And I think it has a lot of important implications uh, for, for how we think about morality and uh, and uh, human nature as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Greg, I think uh, it might be best to start off just talking about what the moral argument is. Um, okay. Some some people in the audience may not have a ton of familiarity with it, and some may, some may know a lot about it. But uh, mm-hmm. if we can just start off... Uh, talking about what the moral argument is. And I think the first couple of questions I, I want to ask you is, in in your view, how, how would you describe the main goal or purpose of the moral argument? Yeah. Okay. So um, the moral argument is part of a, 
um, a trio of arguments for God's existence. And let me start there because a lot of people may be listening. Um, they think of 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 uh, belief in God or Jesus or Christianity as, as just that, a, a simple mere belief. Uh, they might characterize it as a leap of faith or something. And they have no concept that there are actually solid reasons why um, we can um, be convinced that God actually exists. Okay, we're just talking about God now, not Christianity. So this is very broad. And, uh, and the, the, the picture here is a personal God, not just some kind of uh, force or whatever, you know. So does that individual exist? And is he responsible for the world? And there are a couple of arguments that are standard that are given. A lot of atheists will say, hey, there's no evidence for God. Well, you haven't been reading and keeping your eyes open because the fact that the universe came into existence, the cause of the universe is a question. What brought it into existence? So that's a type of argument for God called the cosmological argument. It's based on the existence of the cosmos. That's all. But when you look at the cosmos, you see tremendous um, complexity, not just complexity, but order that even Richard Dawkins would say regarding the biological realm, um, it appears to be designed for a purpose. I mean, that's the first line of his book, The Blind Watchmaker. Uh, now, he doesn't. He thinks that's not the case. He could explain it naturalistically, but there's this appearance of design. It's incredible when you look at the details. So a design implies a designer. That's the second argument. The third one, though, is our topic today. And that where th those two arguments look externally, so to speak, at features of the physical world, either the existence of the cosmos or the order, the particular order of the cosmos. Uh, this one looks at something non-physical, uh, at morality. Okay, now there, there's a, a lot of, uh, I don't know if controversy is the right word uh, to use. But maybe we'll use it for the moment. There's a, a, when I grew up, there wasn't much controversy about right or wrong, okay? But as I entered the 60s, and that's when I was in high school and started college, um, that's when this whole notion of what's right or wrong began to be challenged. And it began to be aggressively challenged in culture because you can't put it in a test tube, right and wrong. And so the conclusion was, well, it's just a matter of personal opinion, all right? You have your view, somebody else has their view, and that's all you can say about it. So uh, relativism, this idea that right and wrong morality is relative to the individual who believes, um, also called subjectivism, uh, that that began to take hold. And now it's huge. OK, now it's everywhere. Okay. Uh, that's captured by the slogan, you do you. OK, truth is in you. Uh, follow your truth. There's lots of slogans now that people use to characterize that. That is the, the knee-jerk public response. But the fact is, deep down, people display or reveal a different conviction. For example, they complain about the problem of evil. Well, well I think that's a legitimate issue to raise, but it's only legitimate if there is a problem of evil. And if morals are like they say, just a matter of personal preferences, they're inside, then there's nothing outside that's actually evil. Okay, that's a contradiction. People talk about, my rights this, or my rights that, my rights the other. But to claim rights like that is to make a moral claim that is not subjective, not relativistic, but objective. People are saying the world contains moral obligations that I call my rights that you have to obey. Now, they don't say it in those words, but that's implicit in their claim. They talk about justice, big conversation, social justice, and all different aspects of it. 
Well, that's justice relates to a moral good and how we ought to behave. But wait a minute, if morals are just relative the way you're claiming in most of your conversation, then there is no obligation for everybody else to obey what your view of justice happens to be. So you've got really the culture speaking with two voices. You have them screaming this relativistic voice. And, and, and by, I did the same thing when I was in college. I mean, I was marked, I, would, I, I was a relativist because I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. But at the same time, I was marching against the war in Vietnam because I thought it was an immoral war. Now, those things don't work together. And I was actually aware of the conflict at the time. But for me, I didn't care about being consistent. I cared about getting what I wanted. And I think that's the way a lot of people are. But, but given this fact that deep down inside, people have this, this awareness that informs these comments and statements and stuff that I mentioned, that morality is objective. There is a standard over all human beings. Now the question becomes, what worldview makes sense of that standard or what best explains it? Or another way of putting it is, this moral project, what does it stand on? What's the ground it stands on? I use the words because philosophically, this is called the grounding problem. Okay. What best explains the existence of this thing? If there is objective morality, then how do we account for the existence of objective moral, not just moral virtues like kindness and goodness and stuff like that, but obligations? And that's the key. In other words, not only is there a virtue of kindness outside of us, but there is an obligation we have to be kind. We ought to be kind. We ought to be just. We ought not hate. Uh, we ought to show respect to other human beings, all kinds of oughts there. The question then is, where does that oughtness come to, come from, rather? And so this is what, where the, how the, the moral argument is formed, given that there are clear moral obligations that apply to human beings, being careful how I word this because it's easy to misunderstand the claim. So I'm putting in very precise terms. Given that there seem to be clear moral obligations that apply to human beings, and, and that can be contested, we'll get to some objections, but um, I'm trading on the common sense instinct or intuitions that we have that inform these other statements about the problem of evil and rights and justice and stuff like that. Well, if what you say is actually true, then we have to account for that. And so this is where the moral argument comes in. And it's actually quite simple. It's, a, it's in the, uh, it's a, for the philosophers and theologians out there, it's in the form, uh, as a logical form called modus uh, talens, I think. And, and it's, uh, if a, if a, then b, not a, therefore not b, that's kind of how it works. But, uh, that's formally, but the, the, the substance is simply this. If there is no God, then there is no morality. And here we're talking about objective morality. Obviously, we could have a godless universe and people still have their own individual standards, relativism, okay? But in terms of objective morality, that requires an objective grounding of that and actually a person, because there's obligations involved, to whom are we uh, obliged and who sets the rules? So if there is no God, then there's no one to whom we are obliged, and there is there are no one setting the rules, okay? If it's just, you know, molecules of energy in the universe, there is no objective, there's no standard for morality, all right? So that's the first line. If there is no God, there's no objective morality. 
second line. But there is objective morality. It's not the case that there is no objective. There is. How do we know that? Because we're all aware of it all the time. That's what informs our conversations. It, it, that's what informs our complaint about the problem of evil in the world. Okay, maybe we'll trade on that a little bit more, but just to understand the, the syllogism, the argument. If there is no God, there is no objective morality, but there is objective morality. Therefore, there is a God. Now, that's the moral argument. Pretty straightforward, easy to formulate, and um, it really not too difficult. Although, keep in mind, for some people, we're in strange territory parks because we're not talking about the physical world. It's one thing to talk about Big Bang cosmology and the universe coming into existence and look at the intricacy even of the simplest cell and, oh my goodness, look at that. All these things, the cosmological argument, design argument. But when it comes to the moral argument, now you're not, you're not using your five senses. You're using a different sense. Now, we use this sense all the time. We have faculties to be aware of things that are not physical. Okay, well, I'm aware of my thoughts. My thoughts aren't physical. They're not in my brain either. My brain's involved. But my brain is chemistry. My thoughts are propositions. They're different things. So we actually traffic in this world all the time. And every time we talk about justice and fairness and, and uh, the problem of evil and uh, how we might be getting better or that person's worse than he used to be morally, all of these things trade on an awareness of moral, morally real things, moral rules that are true. So um, there's nothing strange about this really, in terms of our experience, it's only strange when we start talking about it because we're not used to talking about it that way. So um, it turns out that this moral argument, I think, is one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God because it's very difficult to explain it away. If you deny that there is objective morality, then the problem of evil disappears. If you deny that God is is necessary for that, then objective morality disappears. So you, you, the way I actually leverage this issue part, and I, I mentioned a, a book, Street Smarts, actually it's coming out um, later this summer. But I spent a whole chapter talking about this, and the title of the chapter is Evil, Atheism's Fatal Flaw. The problem of evil doesn't destroy theism or Christianity, it destroys atheism. And then I, I, I really expand on that. But this is why I've said often, it sounds funny, I love the problem of evil, because this is something that everybody has access to, okay? It doesn't matter where you live or when you lived, you know something is wrong with the world, all right? It's a universal awareness. And, uh, and so we can trade on that as Christian theists, to make our case using this argument, as I'd characterized it, the moral argument for God's existence. Um, if there is no God, there is no objective morality, but there is objective morality. Therefore, there is a God. I think that you can take that one to the bank. I think you take all three of these to the bank, but this one is especially powerful, in my view, because it trades on something everyone is completely aware of. Something's wrong with the world. There is evil in the world. Yeah. And you've, I mean, you've raised uh, a lot of good uh, connections between the moral argument and the problem of evil and, and as well as epistemology and some other things. Um, 
one one thing that's always fascinated me about the moral argument is, and and it goes back to kind of you know you you're comparing or you're going back and referring to the cosmological argument, the design argument, and these these are things that you know so, something like the cosmological argument, most people may not really be aware of the the uh, kind of the basic details of that. You know, most mm-hmm. people kind of going throughout their their days, they don't reflect on you know, the fact that the universe had a beginning and what caused that, even though I think that's really persuasive when it comes to the evidence for God, something had to cause that the design can be similar in that, um, some of the objections to the design argument to me, uh, they, they trade on someone not really understanding the argument. And so they Mm -hmm. can just dismiss, uh, examples of design without really, uh, taking the time to understand the argument. Uh, so they can kind of dismiss the cosmological argument and the design argument with uh, what can just be some kind of simplistic dismissals. Uh, yeah, and, and sometimes be- they come back and blind you with science a little bit. They bring in a bunch of speculative stuff that you don't, that rank and file doesn't know how to assess. But uh, that's one of the liabilities of this arguments that are based on some kind of external physical things that other people might weigh in on and you don't know how to follow it. But it like, sounds like what you're getting to here is the moral argument is in a very different category because it's right. directly presented, presentable it, to us. Exactly. It's, right. it's, uh, people can find a way to um, avoid the details of the cosmological argument. They right. can find a way to avoid the details of the design argument. But the moral argument, you can't really avoid morality. Uh, you face it every single day. You face it at right. work. You face it in your own conscience. You face it. Uh, just when you're listening to the news, uh, if, you know, people talk about political opinions, well, poli- you know, that all that rests upon morality. That's so, right. It's like you said, uh, those important features of the moral argument. It's it's about uh, bringing uh, the certain crucial features of morality uh, to uh, a level of awareness where you have to ask what explains this and yeah. As in, is is morality something that is like uh, your favorite flavor of ice cream? Is it subjective right. or is it something like the law of gravity? Is it objective? Is it something mm-hmm. about uh, the world that, that is what it is, regardless of what uh, humans may mm-hmm. believe about it? And I think, well, let me back up and just ask this. Do, do you think those like that difference between the moral argument and maybe the cosmological and design arguments. Do you think this this detail about morality being kind of uh, in our face all the time? Do you think that makes the moral argument uh, more uh, persuasive to people than the other two arguments? Yeah, I, I think that's a great observation, and I I do um, if they're willing to countenance it, um, because the others entail. Um, Knowledge of uh, scientific things, all right, you know, design in the biological realm or the design in physics or design in uh, astronomical issues or something or the origin of the universe. And there's there's counter arguments to these things that the rank and file have a hard time following sometimes. I don't think they're good ones. I think the cosmological arguments and the design arguments really go through. They're the odds on favorite. Let's put it that way. Uh, but but uh, there's nothing special that's required. Regarding the moral argument and your comments that people are making basically moral claims all the time, politics, for example, 
that uh, that all politics, if proper politics, is about the right use of power. That's the right use of power. So when we look at politics in this country and we say that ain't right, he shouldn't have done that. That was fraud. That was embezzlement. That was, um, uh, you know, he bought the votes, whatever. The implication is that this kind of politics is inappropriate. We should be doing something right. There is a law above the law, so to speak. And uh, that was the basis, by the way, for the Nuremberg trials after Second World War, that even though that country, Germany, had their laws and they were following orders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there still was a law above those laws that needed to govern what they did. And uh, so all of these impulses that we have, uh, rights claims, like we mentioned, um, that ain't right. How many times you've said he got away with murder? Are you kidding me? Uh, that is so unjust. All of these comments coming from us bear witness to the fact that we are profoundly in touch, immediately in touch with the moral realm. We know right from wrong, largely. We don't always do it. And by the way, that's another thing. We don't always do what's right. But that's another thing we're all aware of. There is a law that we're obliged to, and we don't keep it. That has other ramifications, you know, for the rest of our story. We'll maybe get to that later. But yeah, I think that the moral argument represents a, a um, not simplistic, but a simple uh, way of making a case for God that everyone has direct access to. And uh, the only trick is when sometimes there is kind of a, like a rhetorical challenges to aspects of it, they can be answered. And I, I cover all of those in, in the book, Street Smarts. Um, but we, uh, but, and we'll probably do some of that um, in this interview. They could be answered, but the basic understanding is is pretty straightforward. You know, uh, moral law means a moral lawmaker, no duh. And if the law is transcendent over everyone, the only law that's going to be appropriate or adequate or um, legitimate is someone who has the authority over everyone, the the natural native authority over the universe. Um, and the only candidate for that one is God. I mean, just thinking theoretically, there's only one candidate, God, the one who made everything, you know, and therefore he can speak as to what is required. And, and he's a sovereign. I mean, that's, that, that's the concept of kingdom. You know, there is a king and a dom, a sovereign and his domain. And the sovereign is God and the domain is the world he made. And so that puts him from the Christian, uh, the Christian worldview then, provides a legitimate understanding of how God could be the appropriate lawmaker accounting for the moral laws that are objectively evident in the universe that we're all aware of. I've often said this, maybe you've heard me say it on the show, on my own show, you told me you've been off the air that you've been listening for a long time, um, that uh, one of the reasons, probably the most compelling reason taken as a whole, why I believe Christianity, the Christian worldview, Christian understanding of reality is true in the deep sense, like gravity is true, like you mentioned, is because it's the best explanation for the way things are. It, it has tremendous explanatory power. We can explain the origin of the universe. Easy, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how our story starts. We can explain the design because we have a designer that makes sense in our worldview. We don't have to come up with cockamamie um, alternative views that are un unverified. And we can make sense 
of moral realities that we experience in life and the obligations we're aware of. And we can make sense of our own violation of those things. You know, we violate them because we are broken human beings that are given to rebellion. This all fits in our worldview. Our worldview explains all this. That that goes to the question of the issue of the explanatory power of the Christian worldview. And when these pieces of reality, origin of the universe, appearance of design, um, awareness of right and wrong that's objective, but these pieces of reality, th- those are things that we're aware of, they, they all need to be explained in a, anything like a comprehensive worldview. And atheism just can't do that. It, it just can't. It's got to deny morality. It's got to deny design. It's got to deny, you know, a, a, a recent origin of the universe. You know, everything came from nothing. But that's wildly counterintuitive. And there are other problems as well. So this all goes to this broader approach that, that I've adopted. And I mean, I'm not unique in this way, but it's a way of I'm putting it. Yeah, our view explains things a lot better than all the alternatives. Exactly. And um, that gets into um, maybe some different, you know, you could talk about the moral argument being uh, framed in different ways. And that's something I want to ask you about. But I, I just want to point out that I, I think it's interesting. You you raised the idea uh, about uh, moral knowledge, you know, that we seem that, that we are aware of this realm of reality called moral facts. Right. And, and there's features to the moral facts that we're aware of. Like you mentioned moral obligation, you know, we could say moral progress and, and things like this. Right. And, and we'll, we'll get to those and uh, talk about some of that. But I, I just think it's interesting. A lot of people today do think that you cannot really have real evidence for something, or you can't really uh, know something in the real sense of uh, no, like to have real knowledge about something, you have to be able to uh, empirically test it in some yeah. way. And so yeah. when you get to talking about morality, and especially morality as evidence for God, a lot of people are going to immediately, uh, you know, that's going to be outside of the realm of what they would consider to be uh, I, knowledge. I agree. There is a, the, the philosophers call this, where you just describe verificationism, and it's early 20th century stuff that has been completely abandoned because the idea that, in order to hold that something is true, you have to verify it in some empirical way. Turns out to be self-defeating because that standard itself cannot be verified in any empirical way. Yet they hold it to be true and they apply that rule to other things. It's very popular. And, and even still, there's an impulse of, of people. Oh, yeah, well, you can know about morality, whatever. And my response is, first of all, verification is, is obviously false because it's self-refuting. And this is why, characteristically, philosophers don't go there aggressively nowadays. They don't explicitly go there. Now, implicitly, there is this impulse. Well, you can't know that. And, the, and my response is, of course you can. You do. Just think about it. Just reflect. The, uh, the, our five senses give us knowledge, but there's all kinds of other things ways that we can know something than just our five senses, which is called empiricism. And, um, and so uh, by, by mere reflection, and like we've stated before, these kind of uh, spontaneous responses people give to their environment that are moral, they think that they're saying something meaningful. That's not right. That's unjust. We have to correct that problem. That government is not doing what it ought to be doing. I have my rights. 
What about the problem of evil in the world? All of these statements that just flow forth from us are based on something we actually know. We observe. And by the way, you don't have to see it with your eyes. I'm looking at this microphone in front of me right now. So I say that microphone is there because I am perceiving it right now. Now, if some atheist says, no, you're not perceiving it, I don't have to believe that because I can see it. All right. But I can also perceive moral truth. And so can everybody else, unless there's something wrong with them. I mean, every once in a while you get an oddball. But if, if our faculties are operating correctly, then then we can see these things. And uh, William Lane Craig, the Christian philosopher, says, you know, why why should I doubt my faculty here when it's the moral issues are so obvious just because somebody else says it's not true? I can see it, so to speak. When I say see, I perceive, but with a different faculty than my eyes. And by the way, we use that language all the time. Oh, I see what you're getting at. See how they love each other. Wait a minute, you don't see love. You see interaction. You infer love, which is non-physical, from these actions, and properly so. So there's a whole world out there that we are constantly in touch with, but we are told not to believe is real when when it comes to when when it it comes to protecting philosophical turf. And I'm just saying, let's just bank on our natural intuitions about things. And uh, yeah, intuitions can be misleading. And so can physical or physical senses be misleading. You ever stick a pencil in a glass of water? You know, it looks bent. I heard one comedian say, that's why it doesn't take baths. <laughs> but we know uh, we can we, we can work around uh, our liabilities there in physical assessments. And uh, we can do the same thing with our non-physical ab- our ability to make non-physical assessments as well. Right. And I, I think that's such an important point to get at. This is just one of the many examples which illustrates why I think it's important. I mean, for all people, but um, Christians in particular should should be uh, philosophically aware, or at mm-hmm. least they should know how to reflect upon these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when someone objects to morality in some sense being evidence for God, if you're aware what's going on philosophically, you can speak to that issue. Uh, right. Just what, like you said, so I I think. As we're getting into just an overview of the moral argument, I think you know, we've talked about how th- this argument really uh, claims that uh, morality is uh, objective. It claims right. that it's uh, it's by nature has to be transcendent if it is objective, and it claims that there is a a uh, a real realm of moral facts that we have knowledge about, and I That's think right. those are all huge features of morality. That once you start to understand this. It, it makes sense how morality can function as evidence for God and really good evidence. And uh, it's something that I think maybe a lot of people misunderstand about evidence for God or, you know, just even these classical arguments for God mm-hmm. um, is the, the basic one of the basic principles of reasoning you know, to me behind them is we are we are reasoning from the effects back to the most adequate yeah. cause. Yeah, that's and, right. And I, that I like, think, yeah, I'm sorry for interrupting. Just want to—I don't want to get too far away from the point you were just making about being philosophically informed. You don't have to get all hoity-toity about it. I mean, I threw out the modus talons for you know you, for your philosophical blockheads that are listening, you know, and there's a little ear candy for them. But all, all you need to know is, yeah, there is a right or wrong. It's so obvious. And uh, where's that come from? Well, somebody's got to set the standard. 
And if, if right and wrong is over everybody, it's got to be somebody over everybody that sets the standard. I mean, that's pretty straightforward without getting into a lot of philosophy. But essentially, what I just described in much more accessible terms is the moral argument. That's right. So one, one, uh, one philosopher, Doug Grotice, he, he frames, um, you know, if you're going to, to lay, lay out uh, the basic logic of the moral argument, he talks about how first you you need to establish uh, moral realism, and mm-hmm. moral realism is just the it's the idea that we've been talking about mm-hmm. um, that morality is um, there is a real realm of moral facts that we can right. know that it's not just uh, uh, internal to us as knowers; it's actually a part of the world. Uh, so, so that's the first step. You know that he would say is you you, sure. you have to establish moral realism. Then you argue that a a personal and moral God is the best explanation uh, for that moral reality. Right. Um, is that the same way that you would approach it? It sounds sure. like it's very similar. It is. I know Doug. He's a great philosopher. You know, he's at Denver Seminary, and uh, and this is right. So we have to establish the fact of morality here in the objective sense, and philosophers call that moral realism. What they mean is that moral obligations are real. They're objective. They're outside of us. So maybe at this point, it's it's fair. It would be good to make a more precise distinction between relativism and objectivism. Okay, so relativism, all forms. We're 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 talking about the area of morality here, but relativism can be much more expansive and apply to all kinds of different. Areas, uh, even science now is being assaulted by relativism. But relativism is a take on what it means for a thing to be true. Okay. Um, and the simplest way that I found to describe this is what I call the inside outside distinction. Okay. If when you say something is true, you are talking about something inside of you, that is, you're talking about your thoughts or your own convictions or your own feelings, or your own opinions. In other words, if the truth of the statement is secured by something inside of you, the subject, that's called subjectivism, also relativism. So when somebody says, that's true for me, because I believe it, notice they're saying it's true in the sense that they believe it. So the truth is resident inside of them, okay? And uh, this is, you mentioned ice cream earlier, you know, yeah, Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream is delicious. I used to use that as a regular example, but people started sending me Haagen-Dazs butter pecan and now I hate it. So in any event, <laughs> uh, I don't actually hate it, but the, there is a there is a truth that is secured by something inside of a person by their tastes or their preferences. Okay, so that's a subjective truth because it's true for the subject. It may not be true for somebody else. Two different people could have totally opposite views on that and both be equally true for them. Okay. Now, uh, you also mentioned gravity a few moments ago. Gravity is different, though. You know, gravity, when we say it, gravity is true, we're not talking about something inside of us. Uh, we're talking about something out there. It, it, it's something in the world. Because if you don't believe in gravity, you're not going to float away, right? It's some external reality that is there whether you agree with it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. That's irrelevant. Philosophers would call that mind independent. 
is grass green. Well, if if there's grass that has the color green associated with it, it is. That's true. If grass is green, it doesn't matter if you think so or not. It doesn't matter if you see it or not. It doesn't change anything. So we have the contrast here between subjectivism, which is a thing is true if I believe it or like it, whatever, inside of me. And I'm going to come back to this point later because it, it's necessary to understand that to deal with a, a big objection to the moral argument that, that we'll talk about. But subjectivism is that the truth is determined by something inside of the subject. Objectivism, the truth is determined by something outside of the subject or person. It is mind independent. It is what it is regardless. Okay. So that's subjective truth and objective truth. Now, the claim here for the moral argument is that morality is the second kind of thing, not the first kind of thing. People can have preferences about all kinds of stuff, but there are certain moral standards that seem to govern the universe, and they are outside of the person. Now, this is what Dr. Grotheis was talking about when he referred to moral facts or moral realism. Morality is mind-independent with regards to us. And uh, so that's the distinction there. And that really is the second premise of the argument, that, that that there is objective morality. There are moral facts, even if people disobey them or even if people don't agree with them or don't believe them. They still exist, independent of someone's opinion. Greg, I think that's uh, that, that distinction between uh, between relativism and objectivism uh, is is so important. And I, I think yeah, for someone, uh, if if somebody's first trying to get their head around this argument, that 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 is the the crucial distinction to understand mm-hmm. that the moral argument is is claiming it's mm-hmm. it's approaching morality from the the point that that it is something uh, real and uh, it is what it is, independent of what people believe or prefer. And if if that is true, that does have huge implications about yeah. where morality comes from and. Uh, those, it seems to me, those are the only, those are the only uh, two options when it comes That's to right. what morality is. It's either something that humans have somehow created, or that has, and, and we'll talk about this. But it's either something humans have somehow created just by pragmatic necessity, or it's something that emerged from biological evolution in some fashion, right. or it's something that is a part of reality that requires a transcendent explanation. Mm-hmm. So I. I, I do think that's a very uh, important distinction mm-hmm. to get. Um, but then, right. another way of thinking of moral realism is, you use this phrase, but moral facts. So if something is objective, it's a fact. It's a fact of the world. If something is subjective, it is simply my personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. And once again, the inside-outside distinction. That's right. Um, so one one important aspect of this, you know, now that we've kind of talked about how morality uh, is, at least the moral ag- moral argument is claiming that it's objective, it's transcendent, it's real, we can know it. We're, we're, we're trying to say that this this argument is making a connection between that kind of morality, which we're aware of, and the existence of a of a moral and personal God. And so uh, one one last kind of area that I want to explore before we get into some objections to the moral argument is um, in in what sense, in your view, does morality depend upon God? And and kind of the second part of that question would be kind of in a general sense, how does morality depend upon God? And 
another angle on that is that some are going to talk about, like you mentioned, moral obligation. They're going to say a very important feature of the moral argument and morality in general is this idea of moral obligation. And so help us understand how morality connects to God and especially like what 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 is this idea of moral obligation and why is it so important? Okay, so there's there's actually two steps going on here and they're very um uncontroversial steps that we use these steps all the time when we try to discover things about our world. We observe something and then we ask what best explains it. And the best is really important because you may have alternate explanations and some just are going to be better than others. They seem to be more adequate for explaining the effect that we're observing. Science does this all the time, but we do this in our normal life all the time too. We are truth seekers by nature, and uh, this is one way we assess. So what is it that we're observing? Well, we observe that morality is real, to put it simply, for the reasons that I've expressed. And this was not controversial culturally uh, up until about 40 years ago. And then then it became more and more, con- now it's very controversial. And, and I mean, this is to think of the gender thing. Gender has nothing to do with your body on the outside. Gender has to do with your mind on the inside. I mean, just to give you one contemporary example, this is huge. This is everywhere. <clears throat> but it's just another uh, a good example of the inside-outside distinction. And what matters is the inside, not the outside. Okay. So um, what we're doing, though, is we're observing here that morality seems to be a, a real feature of the world, and the and, and to deny it puts you in lots of strange situations, because then you have to let go of your rights claims. You have to let go of all your moral judgments. Uh, and I, I wrote a book with Frank Beck, with uh, professor of philosophy over at Baylor now, uh, what twenty five years ago called Relativism: Be Firmly Planted in Midair. It's still available, and uh, I talked about seven fatal flaws. If relativism is true, this is what you're facing. And this is like, there, there's no problem of evil. There's no moral improvement. There's no, nobody ever did anything wrong. Um, you, you, no tolerance obligation, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And this is really, these are the bullets you have to bite if you're going to deny moral realism. So if you want to do that, you're welcome to it. But have good luck trying to live consistently with that. People, people want to be relativists themselves, no rules guiding them. But they don't want anybody to be relativistic towards them, you know. So uh, it's true for me, but not for you. You can't do that kind of thing. So uh, so given moral realism, then we're asking the question, well, well, what best explains that? Where does that come from? And a lot of people respond, well, it's just common sense. Common sense. All I can do is be like, I know what's right and what's wrong. It's common sense. Okay. But I want to make an observation here. Now, this is a more refined philosophical observation, but it's a real important distinction. To say that it's common sense tells you how you know morality. It doesn't tell you where it comes from. Okay, we say it again. It tells you how you know morality. You mentioned epistemology earlier. That's what that is, our knowledge. How you know it. It doesn't doesn't tell you where it comes from, what gives it its incumbency or obligation. Okay, simple illustration. We got... 35 miles an hour speed limit in front of my house here in Thousand Oaks, California. All right. So if I say, uh, uh, where did that law come from? Somebody says, well, it's obvious there's the speed limit sign. I said, yes, but what if I put up a speed limit sign and I put it up and said it's 25 miles out? Would I have to obey it? 
No, why not? Because you aren't the one who makes the laws around here. Oh, so the speed limit sign tells you what the speed limit is, but it doesn't tell you why you have to obey it. You have to, <coughs> excuse me, obey it because there is a an authority above it that made the sign to begin with. I'm not that authority, but the community government is. Makes perfect sense. So that's the distinction between how you know, that's the speed limit sign, and where the law comes from or what makes the law legitimate or obligatory. That requires someone above. So when I say, look at all these things that we believe in, where did it come from? Okay. Um, and that requires a source adequate to the task. That's the key, explanatory power. Now, the uh, the atheist, Christopher Hitchens, uh, who's now gone, he died six or seven years ago, famous atheist, one of the new atheists, used to say, you show me one thing, good thing, that you could do as a believer in God that I can't do as an atheist. And so he's make, trying to make the point that morality is, that God is not necessary for morality, okay? Now, there are two responses to this, and I, I detail these both in Street Smarts. Um, the first one is, you can't glorify God, <laughs> which, by the way, is the summum bonum. It's the greatest good from a Christian perspective. So minimally, he said, well, of course I can. That doesn't matter to me. Okay, I get it. But it, at least it shows that belief in God, at least for a Christian, and a belief in no God dictates a different set of morality, moral obligations. That's the first thing. Okay, secondly, um, that when Christopher Hitchens says that I can do the good things that you do uh, without belief in God, which I believe he can't, without belief in God, but he can't do them without God. Okay, and um, my illustration is Christopher Hitchens used to um, write for Vanity Fair, for example. And so what if I said, um, I didn't, I don't believe in, I, I subscribe to Vanity Fair. I get to read his articles, but I do not believe in writers. Writers don't exist. And he might say, well, wait a minute. I wrote that. I'm a writer. I exist. And I say, you, I can read this article just as well as you can read that. You believe in writers. You think you are one. I don't believe in writers, but I can read it just as well as you can. Well, you, you can see now that my comment has missed the point. The point isn't whether I have the capability of doing something according to some instructions or patterns. It's where the thing came from to do in the beginning. This is what Hitchens misses. Okay. Um, you can, you don't have to have any beliefs about writers or uh, printer presses or newsboys or magazine periodicals or anything to be able to read. But if there were no writers, there would be nothing to read. So it turns out that writers are logically prior to reading. Christopher Hitchens, a brilliant guy, completely misses the point, okay? But the point applies here to morality, okay? The question isn't whether Christopher Hitchens could do the same emotions that Christians could do that we call good. The question is whether those emotions are good for anyone if there is no God. If there, look, if there's no government, you could still drive 35 miles an hour past my house, but you wouldn't be a law-abiding citizen. You'd just be going 35 in the same way. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, if there is no God, he could be kind to people. Kind wouldn't be a virtue. What kindness would be would be a kind of action, a certain action. Okay, he could do that. He could pay his taxes. He could whatever that we call appropriate and virtuous. 
but it wouldn't be good. The Christian could do it too, and it wouldn't be good if their belief in God was false. So belief in God is not necessary to do right things, either for the Christian or for the for the non-Christian, but God is necessary for there to be right things to do to begin with, for either the Christian or the non-Christian. So this gets to the point now, given that we observe morality, that we have a faculty, common sense, might people might say, rationality, they might say, that allows us to perceive it. Then the question is, what best explains it? And this is where one of the things that we observe, we talked about it already, uh, Parks, is that a feature of morality is obligation. In other words, morality just doesn't sit out there like a sign, kindness, but rather we have an obligation to do those things, to be kind. And incidentally, it appears that those obligations attach themselves only to human beings, not to other creatures. You know, a lion eats a, eats a gazelle. We don't say bad lion. It's just what they do. Okay. Maybe it kills the gazelle, leaves it there to rot. We don't say that's not a good use of, human re- of, of natural resources. It's just what they do. But if a human does that, we object because we understand that moral obligations apply to humans in a way they don't apply to animals. Okay. So these are what I'm doing is now reasoning from an effect that we are aware of. And, uh, and that effect is, or that feature of the world is objective morality, real morality. And then we're asking, what is the best explanation? And obligations are held between persons. I don't have an obligation to objects. Okay. It's held between persons. And so there must be a person that transcends everything else that is the appropriate authority, back to the government illustration, that grounds or is responsible for or best explains the existence of the moral facts that we're obliged to obey. That's that everything fits nicely. Of course, part of that equation is God, and people don't like that. So they're going to try to get rid of God and they're going to say, well, this doesn't really work, but it does work. It works perfectly. Okay. That's how the moral argument works and how it, we can, from moral facts, infer properly the existence of a good God who grounds those moral obligations. Yeah. I, I love those illustrations with the uh, with with the the speed limit, and I I forget the second one that you used. Writers, uh, writers, yeah, yeah. I I think writers that makes, and readers. Yeah, I I think that makes a very very important point about what the moral argument is claiming. Um, uh, I heard from a, I I read um Stephen Meyer's book Return of the God Hypothesis, oh, yeah. and in that book he talks about how one of his uh, PhD supervisors always told him, beware the sound of one hand clapping. <laughs> and he used that illustration to say, you know, always be aware that there's two sides to every argument. And uh-huh. the, the only way that you're going to really know how good an argument is, is how well it stands up to the counter arguments against right. it. And so um, I've I've just always been fascinated by the moral argument. And so one, one thing I've really tried to do is uh, is to take seriously, you know, first understand the argument and then two, uh, look at what... Uh, people's objections are to it and try to look at the best ones. And the point that you made about uh, the the distinction between our our ability to recognize that something is good 
or or to know that it's good or to uh to do something that's good to be kind or um that is a a separate thing from what makes the thing good that you're mm-hmm. referring to and right. every I, I would say up to this point every single counter argument or uh you know counter explanation for morality that I've seen always runs into that that flaw it's 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 starting with something that we recognize as good and that you know most the majority of people would say yeah that's a good thing starts with something like that and then tries to build a moral system off of that and never giving a real um never giving a real explanation for why the thing they started with is good and now uh, the grounding right exactly 